So I'm rereading that classic classic book, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. You know, I'm a big C.S. Lewis fan. And so I'm slowly rereading uh, Mere Christianity, and I have come across this description that Lewis gives of, of Christianity that has just stuck with me. And man, it has so much to say about our passage today as we keep walking through the gospel according to Luke. Let me read it to you. Here's the passage. Now, I have not... Uh, I have not put this on the screen, so just listen as, uh, as I read this. He says this, One of the things that surprised me when I first read the New Testament seriously was that it talked so much about a dark power in the universe, a mighty evil spirit who, is, who was held to be the power behind death and disease and sin. Now, the difference is that Christianity thinks this dark power was created by God and was good when he was created and went wrong. Christianity says that this universe is at war, but it does not think this is a war between two independent powers. It thinks it is a civil war, a rebellion, and that we are living in a part of the universe occupied by the rebel. Enemy-occupied territory, that's what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise and is calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. What a wonderful description of what is going on. We live in enemy-occupied territory, but Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. Ah. That's what our message is all about today. It's all about how the king has landed. And we're going to get to see what is happening at the beginning of this public ministry of this rightful king who has arrived in enemy-occupied territory. That's what it's all about. Now, Jesus does a lot of things in our passage today. Right at the end of the passage, Luke gives us a summary of how we might describe everything that has come before in the passage. So we're going to start at the end and then go to the beginning. We'll pick up in Luke 4. Luke chapter 4. We're going to pick up in verse 42. This is right at the end of our passage, a summary of what has just happened, all the action. Here's how Luke will summarize it with the words of Jesus. Verse 42, Luke 4, verse 42. At, the, at daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him. And when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Right there is a summary of everything that has come before. And interestingly, this is the first time at this point in the gospel, according to Luke, where the kingdom of God is mentioned. Such a major theme that's going to keep moving through this gospel account and so much of the life and ministry of Jesus. The kingdom of God. Everything Jesus has been doing up to this point, all the things we're about to study, they are Jesus proclaiming the kingdom of God. That's what we see. So what is this kingdom of God? There's a lot of different definitions. So I just took three scholars and took their short definitions, the last being my favorite, but here's how some scholars have defined the kingdom of God. Many definitions, but here's how we have defined the kingdom of God. It is God's will 
in action. Another one defines it this way. It is God's reign established through Christ. And as Dallas Willard defines the kingdom of God. Now, God's own kingdom or rule is the range of his effective will where what he wants done is done. That's God's kingdom. So what we have in this passage that we're about to step into is we have the kingdom of God, God's reign, God's rule now is beginning to be unveiled in a new way in the public ministry of Jesus. And so what are all these things that are beginning to happen that are really, in summary, the proclamation of the kingdom of God? Well, let's take a look at all those things that are happening that can be summarized just that way. We'll pick up. We're going to go back into the passage. We'll just go where it starts. We're going to pick up with verse 31. So this is right after Jesus has escaped being thrown off a cliff in his hometown of Nazareth. We pick up there, verse 31, Luke 4. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath he taught the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his words... They had authority. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Go away. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, What? words are these with authority and power he gives orders to impure spirits and they come out and the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of simon and now simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever and they asked jesus to help her so he bent over her rebuked the fever and it left her she got up at once and began to wait on them at sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them, and he would not allow them to speak, because they knew he was the Messiah. All of that, verse 31 through 41, all of that is the proclamation of the kingdom of God. This is the reign of God coming to earth in Jesus. Three components, or three components uh, that we see here. All this activity, three components I think we can pull out of this. These are the things happening in the kingdom of God as it comes in the person of Jesus right here in the beginning of his public ministry. Well, the first one is this. We'll just put it up on the screen just real, real easy. I think it's the authority of his teaching. The authority of the teaching. Right out of the gate, you see... This is a man who teaches with authority, and the people recognize it. And you might write, like, what about Jesus' teaching makes it authoritative? Well, if we don't just go with the easy answer that it's the Son of God, and anything that the Son of God says is going to be authoritative, at, a, at the level of logic, like just where, where, we, where we would just think about this reasonably, Jesus is giving knowledge about reality. In any time, anybody in any, any area of life gives knowledge about reality, they have authority, right? So let's just say I walk into the music class at Manning where Andrea is teaching. And I start teaching them how to play notes G and F 
And then I just add some more like M and N and O and P. Like we just start learning how to just play all these notes. Andrew would have to immediately tell them, this man does not know what he's talking about. This man has no authority in my classroom. And it wasn't me just because she might not like me or the students don't think I'm cool. It's because I'm not giving knowledge about reality. I'm just making up stuff. The math teacher who teaches 2 plus 2 equals 4. They carry authority because they're giving knowledge about the way things really are. If a math teacher starts teaching 2 plus 2 equals 5, they may carry some authority by position, but the day is going to come where every student that learned under that teacher is going to realize that teacher had no authority because that person did not know what they were talking about. Because you walk around trying to do 2 plus 2 equals 5 in real life, you're going to figure out people don't take you seriously because you don't have authority. And so what's so important I want us to recognize is that in the spiritual realm, as well as the physical realm, Jesus has as much authority, authority as the science teacher who we think knows everything about the physical world. Jesus is giving us knowledge about every part of life. He's not asking us to just walk into blind faith. He's giving us knowledge just as much as a math teacher or a science teacher as a music teacher gives us knowledge. We just to recognize that. He really is the smartest person who's ever lived. But the other reason that Jesus has authority is because he is the Son of God. And his words literally bring life. Do remember that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's John 1, 1. So in the beginning, when God spoke and it came into existence, literally his words bring life. You'll remember there was this moment in the life of Jesus where he does this, he gives this very difficult teaching. And many of his disciples start leaving. Not the twelve, but many of the other disciples start leaving. And then Jesus looks at Peter. And you remember what he says? You going to leave too? And this is what Peter says. John 6, verse 68 Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's what he says. He's got authority because he's actually giving words of life. You, so there, not everybody believes when Jesus speaks. And so in his compassion, Jesus will often not only just teach, but he'll throw alongside his teaching these miracles as a way of confirming his teaching. This is one reason Jesus does so many miracles. This is why we see miracles emerging at different parts in the story of God's people is because they confirm God's revelation coming through a particular person. This is definitely happening with Jesus. So this is a story that gives us a very clear example of this. In the next chapter, in the Gospel according to Luke, there's a paralyzed man who comes to Jesus. The crowd is so big that his friends put him through the roof to get him in front of Jesus. And you remember what Jesus says. First thing out of the gate, Jesus says, is your sins are forgiven. This is what happens next. Luke 5, pick up with verse 21. Keep reading. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your heart? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth, right, to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And immediately he stood up in front of all of them, took 
uh, took what he had been lying on and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. And they were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. The way Jesus confirms his authority to forgive sins is by performing the miracle. And so miracles come alongside his teaching as a way of confirming his authority. But often also, as we see people being brought in this passage to Jesus as he touches them, as he he rebukes the fever of Simon's mother-in-law, often these miracles are also just compassion. They're just compassion where Jesus is healing those in need. This is part of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God comes, and when it comes in its fullness, it begins to take things that are broken and restores them. He heals. Like literally, as the kingdom of God just expands through the ministry of Jesus, people are healed because that's what the kingdom of God does. It heals. It brings light into darkness. But I want you to notice this. Because if you've ever prayed for a healing and not got it, you're gonna, you're, I want you to see this. In, right here, in this passage, Jesus is in a particular place. He's right here in Capernaum. And in this place, people are being brought to him to be healed. But what, what we should never forget is that these people are not the only people who needed healing. Even with, with these many miracles Jesus is performing, they are limited in scope. Jesus did not heal everyone that was sick around the Sea of Galilee. And he sure didn't heal everybody in the whole region of Judea. He healed only those who came to him. And that was limited. God never promises to heal every person here on earth. It's just not going to happen. It didn't happen even when Jesus was walking the earth. He didn't heal every person. And so sometimes our prayers of healing will go unanswered in the way we're asking them. But here's the thing about the miracles. The miracles point, they foreshadow the fullness of the kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. Because you can guarantee this, in that place, there will be no more sickness. There will be no more death. There will be no more mourning. There will be no more sadness. There will be no more cancer. There will be no more pneumonia. There will be nothing called COVID. None of it is making it in to the new heavens and the new earth. There will be no more addiction. None of it will be allowed into the fullness of His kingdom. And so what we see, even in their limitations, Jesus is even in this moment, as the kingdom of God is expanding right here at Capernaum, it is pointing to the day when all things are healed in His reign. So just keep that in mind, particularly if you're not being healed. The day is coming where you will be in Christ. You guarantee it. So, so that's right there. As we, as we just step into this, this, this part, this component of the kingdom, these miracles. And the third component is that Jesus has evil uh, power over evil forces, right? He has power over evil forces. A lot of questions going on here because what we see is as, as, he, as he demonstrates, as he expresses this power over evil forces, how does that get expressed? Demons are being cast out. And there are a lot of questions about demons. A lot of questions about demons. So let's just take a quick journey through that topic. So I'm just going to say it. Demons exist. Okay? Just baseline. Demons exist. But, it's, but what I think catches us is it sure does seem like there are more demons showing up in the life 
of Jesus than show up in my everyday life. And I mean real demon possession. I don't walk around through Roanoke Rapids just pinpointing demon possession. There's a demon. There's a demon. There's a demon. Now, when I've been around Mark, that was a good one. That was a good one. I've been holding that one. Okay. Okay. Man, I feel like we should just say amen. Like, we can have an altar call on that one. You may not have wanted to join the church until this moment. Right there. Yeah, there's more of that coming, y'all. Not today. All right. George said amen. I love it. Okay. All right. Okay. But in all seriousness, it does appear that it does appear that there are more there's more demon possession in the life of Jesus than what we experience in everyday life. So what 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 could we attribute that to? And a lot of different reasons we might uh, we might give for for this um, this sense of their this just expanded and just um, concentration of, of demon possessions here in the life of Jesus. I think what we're seeing here, as some scholars have suggested, is that we're right we're right outside we're right on the heels of coming out of the wilderness where Satan and Jesus had their first moment in war here on earth. And it is clear to Satan that there is an on there is an open conflict now with this one, this anointed one, who he's been looking for probably for a long time, knowing God promised to send this person. Now there's an open conflict. And Satan is at war with this king who has arrived. And so there's this concentration of demonic activity everywhere where Jesus goes because Satan and the army of demons are literally following Christ where he goes because there is an open war at play in the spiritual realm at this point. And so why does it seem like there's an, there's an increase of demonic activity? Because there actually is. There actually is an increase, a concentration of demonic activity around Christ as this Son of God walks around. And the demons know who he is. Don't miss that. They call out, you are the Holy One, you Son of God. And what does Jesus do? He rebukes them. He silences them. Now, interesting that he does do all this silencing because what are they doing? They are speaking truth. He is the Holy One. He is the Son of God. But Jesus will never receive the testimony from the Dark One. He will not do that. He will accept the testimony of John the Baptist from the Spirit of God, from God the Father who speaks a blessing over him. He will not accept a test of the testimony of the evil one and all of his demons. The other thing we know about Satan and his army of demons is they can speak truth, but all truth in the mouth of Satan gets twisted. And so Jesus will not let the demons speak anymore. He silences them. But that leaves us with this question. What about demon possession? Like, what about demons? I mean, how, like, what do we do with that? Is that still relevant today? Is that still happening? So the short answer is yes. There is still such a thing as demon possession. Demons can still possess people. Let me make a few notes real quick on this. Nowhere in the New Testament do we see a believer, someone in Christ, with the indwelling gift of the Holy Spirit, we never see that person possessed by a demon. So just, just right there. If you are a believer, you are not demon-possessed. We don't have any biblical evidence that that happens. Now, the second thing to mention is, I want to make sure that we wouldn't go, like we won't swing the pendulum the other way, where 
where some who would say there is no such thing as demon possession, that's just a pre-modern way of describing mental illness. No, there is such a thing as demon possession. What I don't want to do is swing the pendulum the other way and say that all mental illness is really demon possession. We need to be very careful with this. There really is such a thing as mental illness, and it comes in a lot of different forms, and it comes for a lot of different reasons. Traumatic experiences do great damage to the human soul and mind, and often the body. And chemical imbalances that often people are born with, those can really mess with a person. Now, we could just keep going down the line of reasons why we struggle with, with mental health. But what I want to note is let's be careful that we don't turn all mental health into demon possession. Could some mental health be demon possession? You better believe it, because we believe in the spiritual realm. But let's not swing it so far where we see all of it as that. But if you want to talk about the most significant influence that Satan has in our world, it's not demon possession. It's unbelief. It's unbelief. I want to pick out here a scripture comes within a larger context, but this one verse is, can at least unlock uh, this key point. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, where Paul writes this. The God of this age, that's Satan, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Every unbeliever is being blinded by the God of this age. So let me summarize all of that this way. Here, it would be better to do it this way here. Satan is still at work. Not just through specific moments of demon possession, but more broadly through unbelief. So what we're seeing in Luke is specific to this moment in the ministry of Jesus. So as he comes proclaiming the kingdom of God, he's casting out demons and declaring his authority over Satan's kingdom. That's what the takeaway is in this passage. But these broader truths we need to also acknowledge, I think, along the way. So as we take into, to, so as we just stack up all three of these, these three components of the authority of his teaching, these miracles, this casting out of demons, we just, we just stack it all up. I think the takeaway... Big picture takeaway of this passage is this right here. The kingdom of Christ is transforming every part of human life. It brings truth, it restores what is broken, and it casts out darkness. As Jesus moves in his public ministry, you can just see every part of human life is being transformed. From the body to the soul to the mind, it's being transformed. And I think that's where the application is for your life and mine today. So let's get it on the ground. Here it is. Big application. The kingdom of God in Christ should transform every part of our everyday lives. I think that's the way this should work. I think the kingdom of God in Christ should transform every part. From you making coffee to you going to work to what you listen to and watch. I think it should transform every part of it. Now, in some ways, if you're like me, that can get a bit abstract. Transform every part of life. So what I've tried to do as I've been thinking and mulling on this is trying to think about those moments in human life where when that thing happens, everything in your life changes. 
And there are just, just a few of those in your life where those are the kind of things where just everything changes. And it just so happens in our church family, there are two families where that has happened. you got to see it. Here they are. These two little ones just came into the world here recently. How cute is that? These precious little ones, little Peyton Clary and Maisie. Am I saying that right, Maisie? Okay, thank you. Okay, thank you. All right, Maisie Wren, just born this week. Little Peyton, she's a little over a month old now. And the great-grandmother of that little Peyton is in this room right now. I knew you'd like it. I told Pat, I said, Pat, you're going to remember this sermon probably for one reason and one reason only. It'll probably have nothing to do with the Bible. Um, So she's so proud of that little one. And I'm just going to, just for fun, because I think this is super cool. I don't know many churches where this happens. You literally have four generations uh, right there, uh, right there in the back. That is super cool. Okay. Um, so, So, like, when these two little ones came in the world, everything changed for those families. Now, the Wrens just added a fourth. But yeah, like, like they're like double outnumbered now. Um, like, everything changed for both of those families. I think, I think the kingdom of God should transform your life and mine in the same way a new baby would, even more so. Now, can we get practical? And uh, Kara, help me with this. You know, I was going to po- put this up. But Kara recently posted this on her Facebook page to describe how a baby changes your life. Go ahead, put that up. So you can't see the small writing, but let me read it to you. Kara, uh, near the end of November, posted this. Like a newborn, be like. Like with a newborn, be like. And here's a meme from the movie Elf. How'd you sleep last night? Great. I got a full 40 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. That changed your world right there. And why do we all laugh? Because we all know what a baby does. If you've had a baby or not, you know. A baby will just, it'll, it'll just turn your world upside down. That same kind of thing is what Jesus is supposed to do. Unfortunately, I think what happens is when we think about Jesus, we think, well, I'll go to church and then I'll move on with my day. The kingdom of God is never just about you going to church or you checking off this box. The kingdom of God literally transforms every part of your life. Even more than a baby. And a baby really changes your life. So, here's what I want to do. Here's what I want to show you. This doesn't come out of nowhere. Jesus actually teaches this very thing. Check out how Jesus talked about following him. This is just later in Luke. Luke 9.23. Then Jesus said to them, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Take up their cross how often? Daily. You literally are sacrificing. You're moving in a different way every day. So how much of your life does Jesus want? How much of your life does the kingdom of God get to transform? Every part. Every day you pick up your cross. Paul writes this. The Apostle Paul writes this. Colossians 3.3 3, For you died and your life. Not a part of your life. Your life is now hidden with Christ and God. And just in case this wasn't clear, here Paul goes even more practical in his letter to the Corinthians, chapter 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink, like, get real practical, 
Because all you're going to do that today at some point, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all. All for the glory of God. When you're driving, when you're eating, when you're at work, when you're about to gossip, when that coworker just shows their incompetence, just the whole range of your life is transformed by the kingdom of God. Okay. So here's the next step. I think this is, this is something practical we can do, but you're going to have to get it down into your life. And I'm just giving you the broad principle that I think can be really concrete. It's this. Find ways for Jesus to invade new parts of your everyday life. If you're like me, there are still parts of your life that are enemy-occupied. And you're just struggling to get rid of them. Jesus needs to move into those places. Or maybe Jesus needs to move into those neutral places in your life and add a little Jesus. So, for example, I don't got any problem if you listen to Yacht Rock on Pandora all the time. Like, listen to your Yacht Rock. But maybe, maybe someone just waved their hand. Um, so, sorry, that was like an inside joke. I want, sometimes I say things to see. You know, remember, remember when we did Up and no one knew what Up was? Okay. Um, maybe you add a little Christian music to the mix every once in a while. Maybe you add Jesus to a place that he t- maybe you don't put him, typically. There's nothing wrong with like different kinds of music, but you add a little Jesus. Maybe you turn on Christian radio. If all you do is watch politics. Now listen to me, what I'm about to say. I have not evaluated this program. So it may be giving you false teaching. Get the principle. Don't lock on to the specific. Because if anybody walks out of here going, I can't believe they told me to watch that. Go with the principle. If all you do is watch politics, then maybe what you need to do is turn on the 700 Club. Got it? Maybe you need to turn on a televangelist. Be careful with all that. But I'm just saying, do you see, I just, maybe you need to let Jesus invade things that you typically don't see him as a part of. Because in the end, every part of your life is to be transformed by the kingdom of God in Christ. So let him invade places you don't typically think of him being. That's the goal. That's where the next step is. You'll figure out where that is. I don't know where all those places are in your life. But let that happen. Let him invade. He is the rightful king who has landed. And we're in on the conspiracy, the sabotage, because Satan's kingdom is falling. And the new heavens and the new earth, they're coming. And I know which one I want to be a part of. And I tend to think you do too. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and how it just transforms us. How your word does so much to affect the mind and the heart and the body. And I'm asking for me and for our brothers and sisters here that you would give us the imagination to figure out those places that are still enemy-occupied in our lives, and may Jesus invade those. Would you literally transform us? May your kingdom impact us in the same way as a baby just just unanchors un- the life of new parents. But even more so, may it happen with your kingdom in our everyday life. We're going to need your spirit to help us with that and give us uh, all those places. And we're going to need each other to help us along the way. But in the end, your grace will hold us. And we're really grateful for that. 
we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. In whose name we pray, together we say, 